Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This podcast contains a reference to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Australia on this day. I'm Michael Adams and today we're going back to Wednesday the 16th of July 1952. That was the day that a middle-aged, meek and mild-looking Australian orphan turned swagman, turned journalist, turned author, struck it lucky when his latest novel was snapped up in a Hollywood bidding war. What resulted was a classic movie of the late 1950s. Motion pictures were only a few years old and feature films still unknown when Charles Shaw was born on the 10th of August 1900 in South Melbourne. He spent the first four years of his life as a city kid, but Charles wasn't to have any memory of his Melbourne childhood. That was because his father Frank, a horse trainer who harked from Tasmania, and his mother Mary, originally from South Australia, moved the family to the country around 1904. They lived in various parts of Western Victoria, Tarang, Warrnambool, Bula and finally St Arnold and had another five more children after Charles, the last being born in 1913. By then Frank was 56 and in poor health. The following year, in November 1914, Frank Shaw died of heart failure and that left 39-year-old Mary to fend for six kids. She moved the family to Mildura and, heartbreakingly, she just didn't cope. Mary didn't get nearly enough in government support and this had to be supplemented by the few shillings that now 14-year-old Charles was able to bring in doing odd jobs. Mary often went hungry so that her children had a little bit more to eat and, unable to pay the rent, in early July 1915, she was given an eviction notice. Her mind unravelling, Mary vanished from the house at 4am on the 27th of that month. One of Charles's sisters alerted him to their mother's disappearance and in the winter darkness he fetched a neighbour. Together they alerted the police and helped the constable search the banks of the nearby Murray River. This was where they found Mary's clothes. Her body surfaced nearly two weeks later. The Mildura Cultivator newspaper reported the tragedy under the headline, Starving in a Land of Plenty. It seems reasonable to assume that Charles, the future country journalist, saw these stories and that he knew the truth of his mother's death. Even so, in later articles about him, her fate was always simply referred to as a drowning. Maybe Mary's suicide was actually her last desperate plan to secure a better life for her children. And if so, it worked, because the younger ones were adopted out. Yet Charles, who was a month shy of 15, had to make his own way in the world. Though Charles was slight and short, he was tough enough to hit the road and take on whatever work came his way. He toiled in vineyards, sheep stations and dairy farms, grubbing, mending, shearing, milking and boundary riding. At night, he supplemented his patchy education by reading newspapers and Wild West magazines. 
Later, Charles would graduate to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Robert Louis Stevenson, and after working dawn till dusk on his rural labouring jobs, he'd turn his hand to scribbling his own prose and verse. Around the start of 1920, Charles went to Adelaide, the first time he'd seen a big city since childhood. He worked at Hamley Bridge, carting goods on and off trains at one of those breaks of railway gauge we heard about in the 3rd of July episode. Charles wanted to see a Melbourne Cup, so he headed back to the city of his birth in 1922. There, he won big on King Agoda, and the money lasted him six months before he went bush again. Charles was back in Melbourne a year later, November 1923, when the city erupted into huge riots after the police went on strike. He was at a picture show when he saw a message flashed up on the screen that General Monash needed able-bodied men to form a militia. Charles, along with thousands of others, was deputised, handed batons and told of the rioters, quote, hit hard and argue afterwards. Side note, if you want the full story of those three days of anarchy, check out the second episode of Forgotten Australia titled When Melbourne Went Mad. Charles Shaw worked many more jobs in many more places in the 1920s, as a door-to-door vacuum salesman and as a tax office clerk in Melbourne, driving a truck in Gippsland and Ballarat, working as a cook for a drover between Aubrey and Wagga Wagga, and finally heading north to dig the underground rail tunnel beneath Hyde Park in Sydney. At the start of the 1930s, with the Great Depression biting, Charles humped his swag west, hitching a ride in a truck and falling from the vehicle and hurting his arm. He wound up in Katoomba Hospital for six weeks, which wasn't so bad because it gave him a bed, bully beef and tea. That said, he did come out with his left arm several inches shorter than his right. But this didn't stop him working the land, and further out west, beyond Bathurst and the winter snow, Charles heard about a sheep show in Forbes. He thought that he might get work there as a shearer, and he did. But he also answered an ad in the Western Sun newspaper that had changed his life. This little notice asked for players who were keen on forming an Aussie rules team. Charles had played back in Adelaide in the early 1920s and he stepped up as captain and coach of this new Forbes side. Through playing footy, he met the brother of the bloke who ran the Western Sun and Charles asked if he might try his hand at writing for this local rag. Soon, he was penning a regular column and, not long after that, he was put on staff. Charles Shaw reported on everything for the Western Sun, from council meetings to bodies being pulled out of rivers. For months, he followed the sensational story of a local firebug, and via these reports, he became the local correspondent for the Sydney Evening News and for the Truth newspaper. Charles also freelanced for Smith's Weekly. After nearly two decades of manual labour and moving from place to place, life was good and life was settled. Life got even better and more settled in 1932 when he married Phoebe McLaughlin, a schoolteacher, and they had a son they called Lachlan. Four years later, Charles even had enough coin to buy a Bantam Singer motor car. Yet, like most other writers in Australia, what he wanted professionally was to see his words printed in The Bulletin. That opportunity arrived when Charles read a bulletin article about Henry Lawson that contained an error about the great man's birthplace. 
Coincidentally, just a few days earlier, Charles had seen Henry Lawson's actual birth register in Forbes with the future legend recorded as having been born Henry Larson at nearby Grenfell. So Charles wrote to the Bulletin to correct them and they took notice of him. From that point on, his stories made the magazine's pages every week. In the late 1930s, the Shaw family moved to Sydney and Charles took a job on Farmer and Settler newspaper. But by 1939, he had itchy feet again and was thinking of moving to Queensland. Walking into the Bulletin Sydney office, Charles told them his plans to head north. The editor settled the matter right there and then by offering him a full-time job. Charles became the magazine's rural editor. His words read coast to coast under bylines that included Cowpuncher, Matt's Mate and Ben Cubbon. He also wrote about cars under the initials BS after his trusty old Bantam Singer vehicle. Under his own name, Charles was also prolific outside the pages of the Bulletin. In the mid-1940s, he published a collection of poems, two collections of short stories, a detective novel and two adventure books for boys. These were well received, but they didn't bring in the sort of money that might pay off his Sydney mortgage or, as much as he loved the Bantam singer, allow him to get a new set of wheels. A year or two after the Second World War, Charles saw a few sentences in a Sydney newspaper that gave him an idea for a book that might have wider appeal, or even worldwide appeal. The item related that the skeletons of an American Marine and a woman believed to be a nun had been found on an uninhabited Pacific island. From this genesis came Charles Shaw's novel, Heaven Knows Mr. Allison. Set early in the war for the Pacific, the story imagined a tough, irreligious American Marine and a devout Canadian nun thrown together on a small island that the Japanese have bypassed in their drive south. He's the survivor of a ship sinking and she's been left behind in the evacuation of the island. Despite her religious calling, romantic tension simmers. And then, when the Japanese return, the duo are forced to hide and to fight. In the end, a tragedy awaits that dovetails with that newspaper article Charles had seen. Heaven Knows Mr. Allison was published by Collins in the United Kingdom in early 1952, and it was an immediate hit. Back then, we didn't publish too many books in Australia, so local readers had to wait for imports to arrive. When they did, the Daily Telegraph's reviewer wrote in May 1952 that Heaven Knows Mr. Allison was a, quote, realistic and powerfully written emotional story of desire and frustration, courage and faith. And it moves swiftly against its ominous background of war to a climax that is as dramatic as it is unexpected. Charles Shaw's novel had huge reach because on the 25th of June 1952, the Australian Women's Weekly, which then sold 725,000 copies a week, published the book in full in a special winter fireside reading issue. With Heaven Knows Mr. Allison in its third printing in the UK and set to be published in the US, the Hollywood option offers started flooding in. So it was that on the 16th of July, 1952, 68 years ago today, that Charles went to the US Consul's office in Sydney where he signed a contract that had been forwarded from American movie producer Eugene Schenck. Charles was paid £4,465, which, adjusted for inflation, is about $170,000. That gave Schenck an option on the screen rights. 
If the film was made, Charles would get more money and also a percentage of the profits. Now Charles, who'd spent much of his life in poverty, had some serious money. Even so, he kept on working. But in addition to pumping out stories for the Bulletin, Charles wrote a new novel that featured a hard-boiled, noir-style crook anti-hero named Del Delaney. This was snapped up by his publishers in the UK. Thing was, though, Collins thought that readers might get the wrong idea if they picked up this first crime book called You're Wrong Delaney and saw it was by Charles Shaw, the same fellow who'd written that thoughtful, meditative bestseller Heaven Knows Mr. Allison. So Collins decided that Charles Shaw needed a pen name, and he didn't have to look any further than his beloved old motor car, the Bantam Singer. Thus, Bant Singer, Aussie noir novelist of the 1950s, was born. Rather than set Your Wrong Delaney in the mean streets of New York or Los Angeles, which was the course taken by the few other Australian crime authors working at the time, Charles Shaw, aka Bant Singer, placed Del Delaney's down and dirty doings firmly in the place he knew best, Western New South Wales. Forbes, disguised as a place called Black Springs. Even with this very Australian setting, which could have worked against him in terms of international readership, Your Wrong Delaney was a hit. It was published in the UK to critical acclaim that compared Bant Singer very favourably with reigning crime champ Mickey Spillane and even to James M. Cain, author of Double Indemnity and The Postman Always Rings Twice. Bantzinger's Outback Aussie Maverick's first adventure was published in Holland and South America and translated into Spanish and into Italian. The oddest version, though, was in the United States, where the publisher had the Australianisms translated into Americanisms for about the first half of the book, that was, leaving readers wondering why this Mickey Spillane-sounding Delaney character suddenly started speaking some alien Antipodean lingo. If you're interested, you can see for yourself why Delaney was a hit because Your Wrong Delaney was serialised by the Bulletin and can be read free at the National Library of Australia's Trove database. Here's how the book opens. Chapter 1. Put your hands on the table and keep them there. You're in my place, you don't argue. There's this big detective giving me orders and his mate is behind waiting to jab me in the short ribs. I get two jabs already, to speed me up I guess. Not speed my feet, but speed my brain, to get it that when these birds speak, I jump to it. So I give him a grin and put my hands where he says. I got no gun, I broadcast. I get a jab that bends me sideways. Speak when I ask, not otherwise, says this bird sitting across the table. The light is blinding me a bit, so I look down. My hands are there on the wood, and I get a notion to clench them and drive them across the table. But there isn't a chance, so I shut my eyes for a second till the pain goes and I get some sense back. Now answer me properly or you'll sweat, he says. He don't know it, but I'm sweating plenty inside as it is. As you can hear, even from my reading, this is spare, first person, present tense, tough guy prose. Australian newspaper writers profiling Bant Singer, aka Charles Shaw, were amazed that this studious looking gentle little 50-something man was responsible for such hard-boiled writing until, that is, they learned a little of the life he'd led for his first three or four decades. With Your Wrong Delaney hot off the press, Charles Shaw got another offer that had to feel surreal to a fellow who'd spent so much time humping a swag through the outback. 
He'd been offered $5,000 to go to Hollywood to spend six weeks writing the screenplay for Heaven Knows Mr. Allison. What became of his script isn't known. Most probable is that Charles stuck too close to his own novel, which, once director John Huston came aboard the project, was deemed too racy and too much of a downer in the end. Over the next two years, the option would be renewed again, giving Charles more money as John Huston and others rewrote the script. Back in Australia, Charles's output was undiminished. In quick succession, he published two more Delaney books, 1954's Have Patience Delaney and 1955's Don't Slip Delaney. Charles had finished the fourth Delaney romp, which was awaiting publication, when, on the 1st of August 1955, he died suddenly, aged just 54, of a cerebral hemorrhage. The Bulletin published a beautiful obituary, which began like this, quote, Farewell to a colleague. Charles Shaw, author, bush balladist, band singer of the Delaney thrillers, bulletin staff all-rounder, Matt's mate and old-timer of countless pars, as straight and staunch a little fellow and as authentic a bit of natural Australia as you'd come across, died in Sydney late in the afternoon of August 1, nine days short of his 55th birthday. Charles's last book, Your Move Delaney, was published posthumously in 1956. And a year after that, the movie Heaven Knows Mr. Allison was released. Shot in deluxe colour and cinemascope, it was a lush, tense and exotically set two-hander, perfectly cast with huge stars Robert Mitchum and Deborah Carr. Though toned down and more upbeat than the book, it's a picture that holds up beautifully. Heaven Knows Mr. Allison the film received two Oscar nominations for Deborah Carr as Best Actress and for John Huston and John Lee Mayen for Best Adapted Screenplay. Adapted, that is, from the book by our forgotten orphan turned swaggy, turned reporter, turned author, Charles Shaw. Heaven Knows Mr. Allison has its place in the picture pantheon, but I can't help but think about good old Del Delaney. That fourth book was published the same year that television started in Australia, and I reckon if Charles Shaw had lived and kept Delaney in the spotlight, we might have seen the character on the small screen sometime in the 1960s. Who knows, if some canny producers listening, we might one day see Del Delaney on the screen. After all, the Americans have just made another version of Perry Mason, and I've got to say, I'd love to see an Australian anti-hero doing his thing in 1940s and 1950s country and city Australia. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. Make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.